Now, actually, this is important because um, the date of June the 29th, 2007, June 29th, is a significant day because on that day, Steve Jobs introduced the very first iPhone, the very first smartphone was introduced. That's not, now you think about that, 2007. That was not even 10 years ago, folks. That is unbelievable because that the smartphone is now ubiquitous. You really see them everywhere. It is a piece of technology that has really changed the world for many of us. Uh, my favorite Steve Jobs story goes like this. In 1983, John Scully quit as the CEO of PepsiCo to become the president of Apple Computers. He took an enormous risk. He left behind a seven-figure salary and a golden parachute as well as the security of a position in an established firm that had an international brand in order to, to join an unproven little outfit that offered no guarantees whatsoever. Uh, the motivation was the excitement of one man's transforming vision, and that man was Steve Jobs. Jobs had tried for two months to get an appointment in to see uh, Scully. Finally, he got to see the Pepsi CEO, and Scully expressed his disinterest in doing anything with Steve Jobs in this new startup with Apple. Finally, in frustration, Jobs called him out. He stuck his finger in Scully's face, and he said this, do you want to spend the rest of your life selling sugar water or do you want to change the world? Do you want to spend the rest of your life selling sugar water or do you want to change the world? And Scully became the president of Apple. Well, there's something really inspiring in that story, but there's a twist to this story as well because in 2011 when Steve Jobs died, theologian Miroslav Volf uh, wrote that his favorite Steve Jobs quote was this, being the richest man in the cemetery doesn't matter to me. Going to bed at night saying we've done something wonderful, that's what matters to me. Going to bed at night saying we've done something wonderful, that's what matters to me. But then Wolf had this one disarming statement. Now, Define what you mean by wonderful. Define what you mean by wonderful. Exactly. See, when Jobs said he wanted to change the world or when he said he wanted to do something wonderful, the greatest idea that he could come up with is consumer electronics. The grandest thing that he could imagine was consumer electronics. Now, my question is this. What have we done that is wonderful and significant that will remain when the power goes out? Nothing that Steve Jobs did is significant or wonderful when the power stops flowing or when the batteries run out. Because you know what this becomes at that point? It becomes a very ornamental brick when there's no power. When life is stripped down to its essentials, what is truly important? What is truly worth spending your life for? Now, one of the results of those who receive, for those who receive the free gift of salvation through Jesus Christ is that Jesus totally transforms their understanding of what is significant and value. In other words, what their understanding of what doing something wonderful would be. And one way that we see 
is that every life in the New Testament that has been truly transformed by an encounter with Jesus Christ responds with radical generosity, radical generosity. So yes, today is part two of a two-part sermon series on generosity. Now, how come you didn't get told last week that it was going to be a two-part series on generosity? Because I wanted to see your pretty face this week. That's why. And the rest of this crowd that's not here, they're in Louisville tonight. I know where they are. They have, they have, a, they have a permission slip. But the view of what is significant for those people in the Bible, the view of what is significant, who have, those people who have been transformed, what is wonderful is so transformed that it redirects their understanding of material possessions so that the very way that they relate to their material possessions is radically 180 degrees transformed. They start giving stuff away because they've been transformed by Jesus Christ. They stop hoarding wealth. They stop measuring their significance by what they possess and they give stuff away. We finally have got all of the fall weather that we have been longing for that for some reason, you know, West Texas has shipped in their climate, thanks Anne, uh, to, to North Carolina. So we've had the 90s last week, but finally it, the weather has broken and we've finally gotten some cool weather. And you know what that makes us think about? It makes immediately, I'm thinking, I actually caught myself singing like a little Christmas song. It was the chart. I know that's wrong. It's wrong. It's just so liturgically wrong, by the way. But I couldn't help it. I couldn't help it. But one of the things I love about that, that season is because that's when the, you know, the Charles Dickens Christmas Carol comes around year after year. And I love that. You know, even though you know, Dickens is not telling us a, a he's not, he's not telling a, a Christian story. He's using the truths of the Christian gospel to tell his story. Oh, it's deeply embedded in that. And the part of that story that everybody loves, right, is at the end when Scrooge loses his ever-loving mind and starts giving stuff away. And that's when people know there's been a transformation. It just happens over and over and over again. Here's why those who are transformed by Christ become givers. They realize that God Himself is a radically, insanely generous God. In Christ they have received a gift so lavish, so abundant, so unexpected and undeserved that they get called up in the hilarity of God's generosity and they start to give. And it happens over and over and over again. We're coming up in the lectionary reading soon to the story of Zacchaeus, so I won't get all down into that, but I love that story of Zacchaeus, the tax collector in, Luke's, in Luke 19. His life had been typified of literally selling his people out, selling his soul, as it were, as a Roman collaborator just to make a, a, a ton of loot. And when this despised man is accepted and embraced by Jesus, he responds with literally laugh-out-loud generosity. Listen to what it says, Luke 19, 8. And Zacchaeus stood and said to the Lord, Behold, Lord, the half of my goods I give to the poor. And if I have defrauded anyone of anything, I restore it fourfold. Crazy, amazing transformation. There's the account we read this morning of the newborn church in Jerusalem in Acts chapter 4, verses 34 through 35. They, they were, these were brand new believers who had just received the gift of eternal life. 
And receiving the gift of eternal life changed the economic structure of their community. It changed their economics. And so it says, There was not a needy person among them. For as many as were owners of lands or houses sold them, and brought their proceeds of what was sold, and laid it at the apostles' feet, there in the church, and it was distributed to each as any had need. What has happened? Transformation of the heart resulted in transformation of the economics of the Christian community. And then there's that beautiful story of the anointing of Christ in Bethany from Mark 14 that we heard read this morning. While he was in Bethany reclining at the table in the home of a man known as Simon the leper, a woman came with an alabaster jar of very expensive perfume made of pure nard. She broke the jar and poured the perfume on his head. True transformation through Jesus Christ just organically results in radical generosity. The scriptures paint a picture of this radical generosity expressing itself in multiple ways. Radical generosity, first of all, is offered, is, is revealed in offering adoration to Jesus Christ. Doing what, in other words, doing what is seen as wa- a wastefully beautiful thing. Like this woman, Jesus says, she has done a beautiful thing for me. Doing what is seen as a wastefully beautiful thing for Jesus is the right use of our resources. And that's exactly what we see here in Mark 14. Some of those present were saying, were saying indignantly to one another, why this waste of perfume? It could have been sold for more than a year's wages and the money given to the poor. And they rebuked her harshly. And they rebuked her harshly. It seemed wasteful and extravagant. You know, when Americans go to Europe, one of the things we like to do is we, got, we like to go see big old churches. Those big old empty churches scattered throughout Europe. Beautiful cathedrals. Built in the 10th, 11th, 12th, 13th century, in the high Middle, age, middle Ages periods as well. And we go into those buildings as Americans, we look around and we're, we are gobsmacked. We're just, bre- it's breathtaking. The, the incredible loft of the, of the buttress ceilings and, and the high vaulted ceilings and the stained glass windows. And especially as you get into the later medieval period, you get that perpendicular architecture. It literally kind of just takes your breath and your breath just goes up. It directs your heart to God. And we're amazed and we're, we're flabbergasted. And all of a sudden, though, we think, now, wait a second. The people that built these buildings were living in huts. I mean, they, you know, they didn't. You know, they were thrilled if they had a couple of pigs and a few acres of land. You know, they were thrilled about that. And here's this extravagant waste. The church should have just given it to those people. No, what we forget, brothers and sisters, is that those people knew what they were doing. They built those buildings on purpose as an extravagant, over-the-top expression of love for Jesus Christ. Like breaking open a box of pure nard and pouring it on the head of their Savior. They were thrilled to do it. When we are truly, when we truly realize what it means to have been loved, accepted, and transformed by Jesus Christ, we tend to love Him in return with an extravagant love. For those who do not know, for people who do not know the transforming love of Jesus Christ, it always seems foolish and wasteful the ways we react. I had a friend named Tom who was 
dramatically converted as a teenager in high school and was was just overflowing with with the love of Jesus. He had like Jesus radiation coming out of him all the time. It changed him completely. He was he had been a jerk. <laughs> I knew I was his friend. And <laughs> and he was totally transformed. Uh, he was from a prosperous family. His dad was a respected professional in our small town. Uh, Tom had a friend named Marshall. And Marshall was from a mill family. Richmond County had a big textile industry back then. And, and there was a part of the county where we had a lot of mills. And those mill towns grew up around those mills. And his family had very little resources. So being 16 years old and being a brand new baby Christian... And having himself fallen in love with God's Word, Tom went down to the Christian bookstore in Hamlet, North Carolina to buy Marshall the most wonderful, extravagant gift he could think of. It was Tom's way of anointing Jesus with his adoration. And so Tom showed me the gift. It was not pure nard. I don't even know where you get pure nard. I don't know what nard is and if I would like it. It was instead of being pure nard, it was a giant, gaudy family Bible. It weighed about 40 pounds. And on the front cover, there was that. Have you seen these little. I, I don't, you don't see them as much anymore because we have holograms now, but it was just like this little plastic uh, thing with ridges, you know, lines, ridges on it. And, and it had a picture up under it. And if you tilted it a little bit, that little plastic picture it looked like it was moving and it had one of those glued to the front cover and I think it was like Jesus snuggling lambs or hugging little babies or something like that it was gaudy just really just the pinnacle of good taste actually um, but to Tom this was the most spectacularly wonderful gift that he could give it would be the kind of gift that he would want somebody to give to him and so with the money he had saved, he purchased the gift and he gave it to Marshall for his family. And the family were delighted. Tom was overflowing with the joy of this extravagant generosity. He was feeling God's blessing and glowing with the sense of God's favor. He went and he told his mom about the gift he had given. Now Tom's mom was a nominal Christian. She was very class conscious. conscious and she and his dad were a little concerned about their son's apparent born-again religious fanaticism. After all, they were Methodists, and this kind of thing was not supposed to happen to them. Tom expected his mom to be just as joyful as he was, but in the words of Scripture, she rebuked him harshly. Her response was that Tom had wasted his money. If he had wanted to give a gift, why didn't he just get her something? See, Tom had given out of his love for Christ because he had been extravagantly loved by God. But his mother told him he was foolish and wasteful. He just wanted to anoint the head of Jesus with pure nard. Radical generosity is always in the New Testament demonstrated in care for the poor which is, in fact, a form of adoring Jesus, especially for those who are of the household of faith. Both the Acts passage we read and the 2 Corinthians passage place Christian giving in the context of caring for the poorer members of the church. Caring for the poor is an expression of radical generosity. 
radical generosity towards the mission of making disciples of all nations because that's what leads people to Jesus. And we hear that actually in Paul's letter to the Romans, he goes through this wonderful argument about how faith is through, how salvation is from God through faith in Jesus Christ alone. And then at the end, we get to his closing remarks. And in Acts, I mean, in Romans 15, Paul writes this beginning at verse 23, but now there is no more place for me to work in these regions. In other words, Paul has worn out the ancient Mediterranean world with the gospel. And he is thinking, I've got to go because I heard Jesus say something like this. You know, if you go to the, when, once this gospel has been preached to all nations, you've gone to the uttermost parts of the earth, and then the Son of Man will come. Well, Paul's thinking, I know exactly where the uttermost parts of the earth are. They're in Spain. There's nothing past Spain. So I'm going to go to Spain. And so this is what he says to the Romans. He said, there's no more place for me to work in these regions. And since I have been longing for many years to visit you, I plan to do so when I go to Spain. I hope to see you while passing through and to have you assist me on my journey there after I have enjoyed your company for a while. Paul is saying, I'm expecting your radical generosity to send me to the ends of the earth to preach the good news. Radical generosity results in greater praise for God. So if that's the case, then why, why do so many believers, why do so many, well, at least so many Christians, not demonstrate this kind of radical generosity? Andy Stanley wrote, the wealth accumulated by church-going people has reached record levels. And despite unprecedented opportunities for global ministry, America, listen, American Christians give proportionately less today. Now think about this. We are the wealthiest generation of Christians to have ever lived. American Christians give proportionately less today to the church than we did during the Great Depression. So why wouldn't we be givers? Well, the first reason is pretty obvious. We don't give because we really haven't experienced the life-transforming encounter with Jesus Christ that we call the new birth. We don't have that overflowing love of Christ in our lives. Jesus really hasn't changed our lives yet. We're, like Tom's mom, a nominal Christian. Or maybe it's because we have the wrong understanding of the character of God. We think of God as a taking God and not a giving God. John Piper writes uh, this of one of, the, of that famous passage from 2 Corinthians 9 I just read. Um, I'll read verses 6 and 7 so I can give you some context again. The, the point is this, Paul writes, Whoever sows sparingly also will also reap sparingly, and whoever sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. Each one must give as he has decided in his heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. And Piper writes about this passage beneath the bountiful giving of verse 6 and the cheerful giving of verse 7 is a heart that looks up to God and sees a giver, a supplier, a helper. When this person looks to God, he feels replenished, not drained. Just like the literal translation of verse 6 implies, his giving is based on blessing, God's blessing. Even when this person hears a command coming from God, he hears it as a hopeful gift, not a depleting demand. We, get, we don't give so many times because we think God is about taking and not about giving. 
We don't give because we think that if we do, we won't have enough. We think that because we think that because either one, we, we don't really believe all this God stuff anyway, or two, we don't believe that God delights to give and to provide for us, which He does. He is so faithful. And He has shown it over and over and over again to me personally. One of the reasons we don't give is because we're not walking in the Spirit. We're walking, as Paul says in 1 Corinthians, we're walking in the flesh and not the Spirit. Well, what does that mean? What does walking in the flesh mean? Well, it means this. It means that I am the Lord of my life and I'm not walking obediently to the Holy Spirit. Hugh Halter writes in his book, The Gathering and the Gathered and Scattered Church, he writes this, Nothing good of the Spirit ever comes naturally or easily. The missional push and the incarnational way of giving your life for others sounds really nice, but the reality is that living this way means you don't get what your flesh wants. You don't get to keep all the money. You don't get to do whatever you want to with your time. You have to share your house, your stuff, your money, your kids. Some people are saying, yes, please, let's share our kids. You have to exchange your ambition for God's, your kingdom for His, and you must be available for God to interrupt your nicely scheduled day with needs that will cause you to pull your hair out. The principle is indisputable. The great things of God cost us our lives. The great things of God cost us our life. But it is in giving our lives away that we find life. Nothing good of the Spirit ever comes naturally or easily. This is one of the reasons why we plant churches. It seems, i got to tell you, whenever we do this, and now Louisville Parish is just Christ's church. It's not a separate church. One day, down the road it may be, but it's just Christ's church meeting in Louisville. So it's really still just Christ's church. But it is so counter our flesh to continue to reach out and plant and give not just finances away, but give people away. Nobody does that. That is not the key to church growth. (laughs) That's the opposite, it seems like. But do we really believe that God is a giving God? Every time we've done this, uh, God sends new people. And every time we've ever done this, There has never been a time when our giving went down. Ever. Ever. It's amazing. We are living the kingdom of God. I mean, He really breaks in and does this stuff, y'all. I mean, you know, church, I love you, but sometimes I just, you know, shaken baby church syndrome. (laughs) Jesus is alive. He's real. He's doing this stuff. He really does I want to give you the opportunity to do something truly wonderful and significant. I want to give you the chance to do something that is meaningful even when the power goes out and the batteries are depleted. Because when we give to the cause of Christ, we are doing something so significant that it will literally outlive and outlast this universe. When we give to the cause of Christ, 
It is something that will outlive and outlast this universe. Back in 1976, we slapped a gold-plated record. I mean a phonograph record. Because evidently Carl Sagan, literally it was Carl Sagan's idea, thought that aliens would have a turntable. Of course they would. We slapped a gold disc to the Voyager 1 and the Voyager 2 spacecrafts, and we slingshotted them out of the universe. Well, folks, let me tell you what. They're going to travel a long, 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 long time, but one day this old universe is going to collapse in on itself and be no more, and everything that you have done for Christ and given for Christ will still endure. It will still be significant. Praise God. And I want to give you the opportunity to do something eternally, radically significant. I want to challenge you to take a step of radical generosity today. Now, if you're not a tither, and you, if you missed last week's sermon, oh, you go back and listen to that. Now, if you're not a tither, then the first step would be to give 10% of your income to God through your local church. And this is your local church. And so there's a little sheet of paper there on your pew uh, about radical generosity. You can just pull that out right now. If you're not a tither, you, the first step, take the, take the plunge and just see what God will do. But if you are tithing, I want to challenge you to listen to the Holy Spirit as He invites you to do something extravagant for Christ. I don't have a clue what that, that might be. But I want you to do, do it as it was done in Acts. In, uh, in the book of Acts we just read, the, the proceeds were brought and laid at the apostles' feet. In other words, in the context of local church. Because what happened was this. The individual gave, but then the church expressed giving as a body as well. And so we want to give it as a local church. And so we would express this radical generosity through Christ's church. So here are some suggestions. And I'm dead serious about every one of them. Beyond a tithe, sell something valuable so that Christ's church can give that money to the poor. Now, that means not something you were going to get rid of at a yard sale or on eBay, but something that's valuable to you, that's significant. Sell it and give it to the poor. Um, Lisa met me in the hallway after I preached this in the early service, and she said, I think the Lord has something He wants me to share with you about that. And I'm thinking, oh gosh, oh no. What is it going to be? <laughs> but yeah, the TV, great. Yes, it could be. But if it is, we'll do it. Sell everything you have. Sell everything you own. And go on the mission field wherever God may be calling you. Are you serious? Yeah. If that's what the Holy Spirit's convicting you to do, do it. Beyond a tithe, contribute a major gift so that we can continue to support young men and women who are being trained for ministry here at Christ Church. It's called the Simeon Fellowship. A gift of, oh, $18,000 ought to be just about right for a year. Beyond a tithe, support a missionary like John Craig for a year. Beyond a tithe, put up a major gift so that we can purchase this building. We're paying a mortgage on it right now. And if that's what God wants you to do, let me just tell you, write this down, it's $356,201. If you can write that out today, we'll, we'll buy this church today. And we'll give the, the money that we would have normally been giving to the mortgage to missions. Or determine how little you need to live on and give a, the rest away to the poor. John Wesley, 
and he kept a record of everything he did. He was the Methodist guy, you know. He kept journals, and I have Wesley's journals. And uh, one of the things he, he recounts in his journals is how much he gives. So, like, the first year he records it, he made 30 pounds as a fellow of, uh, was it Lincoln College? Okay, I have my Wesley expert over here, so Lincoln College. And he made 30 pounds, and he, he lived off of 28 pounds and gave two pounds away. On the next year, he made like 150 pounds. He had begun, his sermons were being compiled and sold as tracts. And so he made some money off of that. And he lived on 30 pounds and gave the rest of it away. Well, by the end of his life, by the end of his life in 1791, when he died at the age of 87, John Wesley had given away 30,000 pounds. That was a vast fortune. In, 19, or in 18th century England. And he lived on 30 pounds a year himself. He said this about his possessions. I cannot help leaving my books behind me whenever God calls me hence. But in every other respect, my own hands will be my executors. In other words, I will disperse my own property before my death with these hands. He gave it all away and lived on what he just needed to live, live on. He gave it to the poor and to missions. Now, I want you to take that little sheet and write out your act of generosity on that sheet in your pew and fold it over, and when the collection basket comes around, just drop it in there. This is not a pledge. This is not a pledge. This is not, not the pledge time for the church. This is an act of extravagant love. The only people who are going to see this or actually, it's going to just be me and Father Keith, and we just want to pray for you about this as you take this step of faith. And as God speaks to your heart, I think it is appropriate to return to that quote from Steve Jobs in an appropriate way to think about it here. Thinking about what is truly wonderful, not just creating consumer electronics. Do you want to spend the rest of your life selling sugar water, or do you want to change the world? Do you want to spend the rest of your life selling sugar water? Or do you want to do something that's going to be so significant that it will exist beyond this universe? In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.